Harry Potter. Who's Harry Potter? You're a wizard, Harry. True then. Harry Potter has come to hope. Potter! How is it that a baby with no extraordinary magical talent was able to defeat the greatest wizard of all time? Lord Voldemort transferred some of his powers to you. You may be the chosen one, mate. This is a whole lot bigger than that. Messrs. Mooney, Padfoot, Prongs. Wormtail! You can do things, can't you, Tom? Things other children can't. I can make bad things happen to people who are mean to me. I would be able to finish Salazar Slytherin's noble work. I must be the one to kill Harry Potter. He's back! He's back! Voldemort's back! You mark my words, there'll be killings next! Dumbledore is a great wizard. Only a fool would question it. I know what you did, Malfoy. You hexed her, didn't you? Hogwarts has been chosen to host the Tri-Wizard Tournament. Fight back! You coward, fight back! Why is it when something happens, it is always you three? Believe me, Professor. I've been asking myself the same question for six years. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented just like always by two true freaks. I'm your host Magnus, and right now it's all movies all the time, but usually what I talk about is comics, movies, and TV shows, but the reason I'm talking about so many movies right now is because, you know, for a long time there, I somewhat consciously set out to have more of a of a comics related type of type of podcast and honestly I, the reason for that is it's nothing more sophisticated than everybody else was talking about movies for the most part and I didn't really want to be thought of as a movie podcaster and so it seemed more logical for me to want to talk about comics that's the decision I made and I stand by it but that doesn't mean I can't talk about movies at least once in a while, right? And so what I've been doing lately is a mega series that's been all about not just movies, but specific movies. And for one episode, I talk about a Harry Potter movie. For the next episode, I talk about a Chris Nolan Batman movie. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's what I've been doing lately. This whole mega series started off with me and Rebecca Johnson talking about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The episode following that, I shifted gears and I was joined by Professor Allen so that he and I could talk about Batman Begins. And now it's time to go back to the Wizarding World. Yes, I'm going to be talking about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Now, specifically what I'm going to be talking about is the movie, but I, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I don't really see a way to talk about the movie without at least talking somewhat about the book. 
But honestly, the movie is going to be really the focus of the conversation. And as it happens, I'm going to have a lot of help because rejoining me, once again, is Supergirl... I keep wanting to say Supergirl Forever Radio. <laughs> sorry. Su it's very close to Superman Forever Radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so sorry about that. Supergirl, uh, Supergirl Radio uh, founder and host, or hostess, host or hostess, I'm not sure which, Rebecca Johnson. <laughs> well, I'm happy to have you back. I just want to say, you know, in the long amount of time that it's been since you and I recorded the, the last Harry Potter show that we did, I got to tell you, I think it turned out swell. So that was one of the, that's really the main reason I, I insisted on having you back after so long a time. So if it sounds at all like she and I just recorded the Harry Potter show, guys, it's a trick of the microphone. Don't don't pay any attention to it. How are you doing, Rebecca? I'm doing really well. I um, haven't read. Mm -hmm. but Ditto. The, the, but the movie, I've revisited it a little bit, and I will probably get into it. But this this might be one of my least favorite, if I was going to be honest, uh, of the movies. Mm -hmm. um, but but I have I have some uh, some funny stories about the Chamber of Secrets because I remember the first the first time I saw it in the theater, and this is part of why it's kind of my least favorite because it's kind of long and overloaded in parts. But when I went to go see it in the theater when it first came out, I went. Uh, because I, I, I mentioned on our previous episode that my mom was a Harry Potter fan before I was, so I took my mom to go see The Chamber of Secrets the first day it came out, but we had to go at like the 11 o'clock showing, the 11 o'clock p.m. showing, and I can't exactly remember why. <laughs> late night showing of The Chamber of Secrets, and that was probably a huge mistake. Because it was, it is a long movie, it's a very long movie. And in the theater, there, I think it was at the point where the Forbidden Forest stuff is going on, and it's dark, and nothing is really happening, and there was a guy snoring in my theater. Oh. Snoring so loudly. He'd fallen asleep, and he just started snoring. And it was really funny because the next day, I went to work, and I was telling the story to someone else about, you know, this guy snoring in my theater, and it was really kind of annoying. <laughs> Another co-worker popped into the conversation and was like, what theater, what, which theater did you go see? <laughs> you know, and what, what time did you see it? And uh, so I told him, and he said, I think that was me. <laughs> so it was just kind of a really small <laughs> man who fell asleep in the theater was one of the guys that Oh, wow. <laughs> That's that when, it, when I think about the Chamber of Secrets movie, I always come back to that conversation and that experience because I, I felt a little bad about it, but at the same time, I was like, dude, you fell asleep and you snored in fear. <laughs> annoying everybody. But, um, but I try not to let that experience take my view of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You know, uh, I, I was coming at this uh, from. I don't know how, like, I, I guess a little bit more of an informed perspective. By the time this movie came out, actually, I, I guess just to sort of revisit the past very briefly, um, the, I, I, 
I saw the the first Harry Potter movie, and it was that was basically my introduction to uh, Harry Potter. I didn't. I, I'd never read the books. I didn't really know really anything about it. I just this was the next big thing, and this girl that I was dating at the time, she wanted to see it, and so blah blah blah. Here we are, right? A little bit of a different, a little bit of a different story with the, with uh, the the second movie. I went ahead, picked up all of the books, and read them. And you know, I've got this memory of sitting at my desk at work. I used to do half days. I would come into work and do half days on on Saturday, even though the company wasn't really open for business as such. We would nevertheless do like pickups and you know deliveries and whatnot, and so this was well not deliveries, but people would pick up their orders and stuff at this computer company that I worked at in the Heights, and you know so that's where you know any of our retail customers that's where uh, you know a good number of them would come in and you know they need to pick up their stuff. Somebody had to be there, and so every other Saturday I would do a half day, right? And sitting at my desk reading these, you know reading the books and specifically it was actually the second book I remember thinking you know this is it's kind of a slog you know getting through this book it's I don't know what it is but there's some magical something that was present in Sorcerer's Stone and in the Prisoner of Azkaban it's just not there with with uh, the Chamber of Secrets it's like there's some third element that the plot needs that it just doesn't have to move the story along. I mean, you've got this A plot of Dobby or not, uh, sorry, that's not the A plot. The A plot is the Chamber of Secrets and goings on with that and the heir of Slytherin and, you know, what exactly is going on. That's I guess the mystery of the piece. And then the B plot is goings on with Dobby and his kind of reckless attempts to protect Harry and things that are happening there. And it's like there's some third element that needs to be happening in the story that just isn't. And so this is true in the book. And I think the movie suffers from the same thing, that something else needs to be here, and it's not. And go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, That's really interesting to me because I almost think that there's too much going on. I, I see what you're saying, though. I, I, there is there is something that's not quite there. Like it should. It's as as a movie, you have all of the elements. You have the cool mystery of the Chamber of Secrets and how to open it, and who's um, causing all of these problems for Hogwarts, and and who is the heir of Slytherin. Like all of that mystery is really good, but yeah, there is something missing. But at the same time, I think the movie tries to do too much. And I think when, when I talk about Chris Columbus, like, I love that he, he brings the books to life. But I think in this movie, like, his strength in the first movie, in The Sorcerer's Stone, was that he, he made the, the pages leap to the screen. Mm-hmm. But I think the downfall of his dedication to the books was that he tried to include too much and tried to include all of it. <laughs> And I think sometimes with an adaptation, I think this is an example that maybe you don't have to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I think, I mean, there's just so much going on. You do have, um, you know, the, the Chamber of Secrets, you have the Dobby stuff. 
um, and, and the Tom Riddle's diary and all of that. But I just think he, he made, I think some of these sequences to me feel really long. Like some of them could be cut down, like some of the pacing of the movie. I think it is, when you talk about the book being a little bit of a slog, that's how I felt about the movie. And I think that's why my coworker fell asleep in the theater is because some of it just felt so long. But it's interesting to me that you would have the opposite side a little bit that maybe there was something missing. So that, that's a cool viewpoint. Well, what I base that on is, is there's this moment in the movie where Harry, Ron, and Hermione take a polyjuice potion and they're basically going to try to go uh, deep undercover to find uh, find out what, if anything, Malfoy knows about the heir of Slytherin. That's a plot point where the characters go into it knowing nothing. While the plot point is going on, they discover nothing. And then when they come out the other side, not really much, if anything, has happened that uh, has given them new information or has really advanced the story. Right. And that, to me, is a, is a prime example of a good five or ten minutes or however long that sequence lasts. Something that you could cut out, and I don't think most people would even know the difference. You know, so, like, that's, like, the slog part. But even the, the things where they are a little bit more plot-relevant, it's almost like there's still something... There's something that needs to be happening there that just isn't. And that's why I say that. So I do find it interesting that you and I have kind of similar yet diametrically opposed mm-hmm. kind of criticisms. But I kind of regard that as a sign that, you know what, we're right about something. There's something here that's that's a little bit off. And I'm not one of those people who uh, likes to know too much about what goes on behind the scenes because I think sometimes that can ruin stuff for you. But J.K. Rowling has said on multiple occasions that she had the mother of all cases of writer's block when she was writing this book, and she had her notes in terms of what this book needs to do, what needs to happen, on the one hand. On the other hand, there was... she. It's like she just kind of lost her mojo temporarily, you know? And she wasn't sure, I guess, how best to do what needed to be done. And I think that comes across in the book. But there's a kind of a dull plotting aspect of this of this thing as a movie. When what is the name of the shop, the bookstore? Is that Flourish and Blots, or is it's something? I forget. I think think that's right. I should know that. I've actually been at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando. I should know those things, but I think it is Flourish and Blots. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, whatever the bookstore is called. Um, You've got this signing with Gilderoy Lockhart. And in the book, what happens is... uh, Now, of course, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Malfoy Sr. Lucius Malfoy. Yeah. Uh, He and... Uh, Arthur Weasley get in a fist fight with one another and, you know, uh, all kinds of wacky hijinks ensue in the book. And that doesn't happen in the movie. And I'm not saying that including the fight in the movie would have necessarily changed everything. But that's a good example of what I'm talking about. A scene that just is played so slowly. There's this moment where uh, Harry stares Lucius down. 
And it's just, again, there's something that's not happening here that needs to happen. And the scene is just kind of dull and lifeless as a result. You know, now I'm not saying that the whole movie's like that. If anything, you know, Rupert Grant had really started coming into his own as a performer here. And in the, in the first movie, he was just kind of there. He did what he needed to do. He hit his marks and he said his lines. And I guess as far as, you know, a child actor is concerned, sometimes that's about as much as you can hope for. In the second movie, it's a little bit different. You know, he's really funny. You know, he's got good comic timing. And he's not being, you know, the cutesy child actor anymore. He really is becoming more of an actor. And it's kind of funny to think he arguably got there first of the trio. He's the one that got there earliest. And he's reliable throughout all of the movies. He never stinks up the screen at any point. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts there? I think that's a good point. I When you were talking about how he, he kind of became a performer and, and how funny he was, it makes me think of the scene when Harry and Ron go, you know, they follow the spiders and they meet Aragog out in the woods. And <laughs> I guess in some... In some ways, I identify with Ron in that scene because, I mean, I'm not, like, deadly terrified of spiders. Like, I can confront them if I have to. But being put in a situation where you're staring down this ginormous spider and then, like, spiders are coming down from all directions on top of you, Rupert does a really great job in that scene because Ron does have this huge fear of spiders and he, he plays it really well because I think you you have to understand that there's a lot of danger in that scene but you're kind of put at ease by his freaking out about it and what's nice about that scene is that Daniel sort of kind of helps out with a little bit of that comedy where he's like okay all right we have our information now we would like to leave <laughs> I think I think that scene is, is a good example of what you're talking about because you, I, I really buy into the fact that Ron wants to get out of there. <laughs> um, and he does it in such a way that it sort of, it makes you laugh. And, but it also makes you realize that there are huge stakes in that. And I think, you know, that's a mark of good writing. You know, Ron, he, he's, not just in the wizarding world, he's of the wizarding world. This is the only world he really knows. And for him to have such a common, ordinary, mundane fear, you know, something as, uh, I don't know, something as conventional as spiders, you know, of all things he could possibly have a phobia about, it's not some obscure magical creature that that we've never heard of before. It's something that everybody knows and is and is familiar with. And honestly, I think that's a very typical phobia. I don't know of anybody who really loves spiders and, and just thinks they're cool to look at. You know, those those really close up photos of spiders with all of their eyes and everything have always just creeped me the hell out. And I don't know. It's I I thought it was it was actually very clever to give him that as a fear, you know, and it could have been anything, and it's spiders, and I just, I, I appreciate that. Well, and there's actually a moment in the movie when uh, the way they shoot Aragog, 
they do close-ups of his eyes. So uh, I hope that didn't freak you out too much. But that is kind of scary to see, like, all of the eyes of the spider. and Because and, you don't actually see the spider move his mouth when he's talking. So I guess that's why they visually use that to where you, you see more of his eyes. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's a, a neat point that you bring up about how that kind of helps us relate to Ron on a certain level, even though he is part of that magical world. And maybe for Ron, the magical creatures that he's scared of are these ginormous spiders. <laughs> maybe it is, we, we all have, like, humans and these magical people, you know, the muggles and the magical people can both be scared of spiders, they just might look differently <laughs> in each of the worlds. Whereas in the magical world, Ron's spiders that he's scared of are humongous and talk to you. <laughs> so maybe there's a little bit of a difference there. Agreed. And you know, I think the honestly, all of the all of the kids are more seasoned as performers. And to kind of go back to you know, flourish and, and blots, there's this moment when. Uh, the Gryffindor kids are trying to exit and there's, you see Draco Malfoy, he's standing on a, a staircase. He looks over and sees, you know, what's about to happen. So he tears a page out of a book. He just sort of makes this face. He tears a page out of a book, drops it, and then goes to uh, pick a fight with, with Harry. And then Lucius wa uh, wanders in. And Again, you know, Tom Felton, he also grew quite a lot. And I and I don't mean just literally, although that too. But he grew a lot as a just as a performer and he knew what looked good on camera, like what good physical action looks good on camera and what you know, how to make faces and and really just how to act. And go ahead. I was just going to say um yeah, I agree. I agree that he learn something from the first one, I would guess, in terms of what made Malfoy such a good villain. And I think all of the kids, and that may be partially due to Chris Columbus as a director. I've always heard in their interviews and, and, and behind-the-scenes features that he was the one who kind of really helped steer the kids in the right direction. So I think when you see the growth from the first movie to the second one, I, I would like to think that that is partially... Uh, due to the direction of Chris Columbus. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. And this is, it, it's kind of funny that of all things that improved with this movie, to kind of tie it back to what we were saying before, the story isn't really one of them. I mean, everything else is better. You know, there's, I would say that, you know, the the the, the score is, is definitely better than the first movie. The visual effects and action scenes, those are better. Acting, that's better. Everything literally is better except for, you know, the story, which is arguably the most important part. It's it's just kind of I mean, what a strange fate that is. Now, that having been said, one of the things that I kind of like about Chamber of Secrets is that it's a little bit more of a horror story. I mean, there's a little bit of a a scary movie component to all of these movies. But this is the only one I think of that you could really say, yeah, this is the horror story of the Harry Potter uh, universe. You know, some, like I say, they don't, none of the, none of the movies and the books completely break away from that. But this is the only one that has both feet firmly planted in that, 
in that world. And it, to me, what it does is it, it kind of raises the question, is Chris Columbus the guy to direct this movie? Or maybe should, should Warner Brothers have found a different director for this one? Yeah, and I was reading up on that because I couldn't remember the story about why Chris Columbus stopped directing them. And the, from what I understand, like he was signed on to direct every Harry Potter movie that was going to be made. Wow. But after, after the, the, I guess during the second one, maybe he decided he wanted to spend more time with his family, and you know he, he felt like it was an overcommitment on his part to do that, and so that's why he, he backed off it. And then eventually left, you know, he stayed on, I think, as a, in a producing capacity um, at some point. But then eventually he left the series altogether. And I started thinking, you know, what would it look like if he had directed all seven movies? And I think that would have actually been a disservice to the stories because I like that they all kind of have a different feel. Like you were saying, like, this one would have been a good, you know, more set more as a horror movie because there are those scary gigantic spiders there's the cool stuff with the basilisk and the diary and the mystery of the chamber of secrets so there are a lot of really scary elements in this one yeah agreed and and this is one of those things that you know it your thesis can never be proven nor disproven, but it, it does it does kind of make you wonder sometimes, you know, might the material have been better served? But, you know, I can't help but think a different filmmaker might have been able to take the raw elements of what this story is. And I don't think those raw elements are necessarily J.K. Rowling at her best, but nevertheless, take those raw elements and maybe make something a little bit better out of them. Because I don't want to stray too far off topic, but I would say that The Deathly Hallows is a better movie than it is a than it is a book. And you know, there are some fans out there who would maybe call that sacrilege, but you know, the the meat and potatoes of what The Deathly Hallows is as a story, I think is better brought across in a movie format and God knows the con- like the conclusion, the big finale is done in I think a more satisfying way. And to me that's that's what a film adaptation needs to do. It's not so much just shooting the book, because sometimes what makes for a good book doesn't necessarily make for a good movie. Like, if you just shoot it literally. Lord of the Rings is a good example. Like, if you were to just literally make every single page of that into, put that into a movie, I don't know that you're going to have something that's very in, uh, entertaining to watch. And yet, the Lord of the Rings films are basically universally regarded as monumental achievements in in filmmaking precisely, I think, because they don't necessarily slavishly follow the book. And I think a little bit less slavish devotion may have actually elevated subpar material in this case. So the tone of it, you know, I'll give Chris Columbus credit for this, that he... He knew what he was up against, at least in some ways, that this is a little bit more of a scary type of story. And, you know, I think he, within the rubric he'd established in the first movie, he actually did something that, that works well. But it's just, I, of all the Harry Potter movies, this is the one that I don't think has aged very well. I, I would agree with that to a point. There was a, when I was rewatching the Chamber of Secrets, 
I was struck by how good Dobby looked. Yes. For, the, for that time period. And that, I think, um, I know we talked about in, like, The Sorcerer's Stone, some of those effects don't really hold up. But I think with Chamber of Secrets, I think Dobby especially, I think he holds up really well. He looks very real. Um, the the way he moves and the way he talks to and, and interacts with Harry is very believable to me. So there are some of, some of those elements, I think, hold up quite a bit. Um, but overall, in terms of the, the 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 movie as a whole, I think it. it I mean, obviously, any movie can be improved, but I, I think this one could have been improved improved to a point where it would hold up a little better. Well, and speaking of Dobby, you know, computer generated characters had really rounded a corner because right around this same time, audiences were being exposed to a computer generated Yoda. They they saw Gollum in the Two Towers, and not very long after this movie, there was uh, there was Ang Lee's uh, Hulk movie, and all of those featured obviously computer generated characters as main characters in those films, and this was when you think about it, I mean there was a lot of competition out there in terms of computer generated characters and acting performance and whatnot that Dobby had to compete with. And I think he did whoever, you know, whichever visual effects house created Dobby, they did, they really outdid themselves in terms of a believable performance. And I don't, I probably should have checked into this before we started recording. I don't know who the voice actor was for Dobby. I don't know what they paid that person. It couldn't possibly have been enough. This was an amazing vocal performance. Do you agree? Absolutely would agree. I think Dobby is one of those characters when you first meet him, it's almost like Hermione in a way. You're, you're kind of thrown in with this character who seems to put you off a little bit when you first meet them. Mm-hmm. But the more you get to know them and the more you're uh, affected by their story and what, what they have to say and how they interact with Harry, I think for me, he becomes one of my favorite characters in the Harry Potter story because at the beginning, he just seems like this little goblin who's trying to keep Harry from, um, even though he's an elf. I I know there's probably a a very nerdy distinction between elves and goblins. But, you know, when I first met Dobby, he seemed like a guy who was trying to cause trouble and who was preventing Harry from going to school and being around his friends. And even, like, when he, like, keeps Harry's letters from him, mm-hmm. Dobby, dude, you're not supposed to do that. Um, maybe they have different postal regulations in the Wizarding World, um, obviously with the owl system. Um, but he seems like this character who's keeping Harry from things. And the more you get to know Dobby, you... you I felt more compassion towards him because of his story about how house elves are basically slaves. Yeah. And and I think Harry, the more he interacts with him, he has sympathy for him and that actually helps him in the end, which is really great. And another reason why Harry is such a hero. But I think Dobby, his performance, you you have to buy into the visual effects of it, but you also have to buy into the words and how they're spoken. And so the vocal performance of that is Uh, Part of what makes Dobby such a great character. Agreed. And, you know, basically, 
what I what I don't want is for anyone to think that I look down my nose at this movie. I don't. I said I don't think it's it's all it could be, but there are some really uh, fun moments in this. I mean, like, like you were saying, pretty much anything related to Dobby. But there's a lot of universe building that that happens with all of this, where uh, we we get a little bit of the Whomping Willow. We start finding out, you know, this isn't just. It, it's introduced and it's suggested really from the start. This this isn't just part and parcel of the weirdness that is the Hogwarts school. There's a real purpose that's being served here. But the other thing is, you know, just in terms of, you know, fun stuff, the, the Quidditch match that we see in this movie is, this is basically, I guess, the learning curve that the production team went through in the first movie. The Quidditch match from the first movie wasn't, bad but it wasn't i don't i don't think it was as visually dynamic and engaging as this one is which is important because there's a little bit more of a of a rivalry going on here between malfoy and and harry they they now actually are competing against each other on the quidditch field and it brings their rivalry now to a different level and it needs to look better than it ever has and Thankfully, it does. Yeah, I like all of the stuff where they're sort of on the brooms and <laughs> kind of clamoring into each other. Um, and that, that stuff really sells the fact that they are really, um, as you say, competing to be the best in that field in, 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 on the Quidditch pitch. Um, and I, I feel I feel for those special effects people on the Harry Potter movies at the beginning because you, I, I keep imagining like somebody sitting in a, a meeting room and thinking, well, how are we? What is Quidditch and how do we bring this to life? Like <laughs> nobody's ever done this before. Nobody knows what Quidditch is. How do we make this understandable? So I I um, I can let some things slide because there, there, I think there was a learning curve from the first movie to the second movie to understand, okay, what worked and what didn't work? How can we make this look better? And I think the emotional aspect between Harry and Draco in that Quidditch match, I think, is what elevates it to a little bit of a different degree because it's not just, oh, let's show them playing Quidditch. It's let's show them playing Quidditch, but also what it means for these two characters. So I think I think you're right. I think it does raise it to another level. And one of the things I kind of liked about... I, I liked about that Quidditch match, I don't remember this in the book one way or the other. So maybe it was in the book and I just don't... I, and I'm just not recalling it. But there's this moment when Draco Malfoy totally eats it on, uh, on the Quidditch field. He just wipes out and crashes, and as it happens, Lucius Malfoy just happens to be up in the stands watching. Now, most parents, if they see their, you know, their child basically eat dirt like that, their first instinct, I think, would be to run down there and uh, see if see if their kid is okay. Right. And we get a little bit of character development here that you know what? That is not Lucius's reaction at all. He's disgusted. He's disappointed. He wanted his son to triumph over Harry, and he didn't. Mm. And the disgust that's on his face, watching his son, you know, who's just had his wind knocked out, and probably in a, a, a decent amount of pain. I mean, it's nothing life-threatening, but 
nevertheless, he's in some amount of pain. He maybe could use a helping hand at that moment, and he doesn't get it. And you get the the sense that that's Draco's life. That's how he's been raised. That's what he knows, you know. And it's kind of hard not to feel sorry for the kid, you know. I mean, yeah, he's kind of a jerk, but he's not necessarily treated like some kind of spoiled, pampered prince. I mean, he, in a weird kind of way, Draco Malfoy would love to have the home life that the Dudley Dursley has. You know, that kind of, you know, those parents who just love and adore him, they dote over him. And he doesn't have that. And in a weird kind of way, it's, it's a blink and you miss it moment, but it says so much. And you do kind of feel a little bit in that moment for, you know, what a strange fate it would be to be Draco Malfoy, you know? Yeah, and I wonder if, you, you mentioned that he would probably love it at the Dursleys, but I also wonder if he would love it at the Weasley house. Like, what would it be for him? Because the Weasleys, I think, are the complete opposite of the Malfoy family. The, the Weasleys are more loving. They're more down-to-earth. They seem to have more of an idea of what family should be. And, you know, being around each other, sharing meals, you know, caring about each other's lives. And the Malfoys don't, they seem to be very distant to each other. And so I wonder what it would, would have been like for, for Draco to grow up with a family who did seem to love them. Because I think that's a really good point that you bring up that, like, when he gets injured in a, competitive event his father is disgusted and disappointed and that is really cold for a parent to cold and unfeeling uh, for the the parent to express towards their child and what that would have meant for Malfoy and how that plays into Malfoy being a bully so I think that's a really interesting question Uh, from there you know you start getting into uh, other things a little bit more universe building here it was somewhat hinted at in the first movie but it was framed more i think as this sort of elitist english aristocracy you know the first time i saw the first time i saw sorcerer's stone i interpreted draco malfoy because i'd never read the book i interpreted uh, interpreted him as sort of a an analog of that sort of snooty, sniffy British aristocracy, you know, that looks down their nose at everybody's stiff upper lip and all that sort of thing, you know? And that, I think that may even be a part of all of this, but there's something deeper going on with the, with aspects of the Wizarding World, a segment of the Wizarding World that, the metaphor that J.K. Rowling is running with here is racism, which, to be honest with you, I mean, this is one of those things that I always kind of thought was a little bit preachy on her part. I mean, you know what? Maybe people in the in the wizarding world really would feel this way, but I just kind of found this conflict a, a little bit difficult to believe in. But this idea of people looking down their nose at other wizards simply because of the fact that they don't come from a pure blood line of wizardry. And that's arguably the entire franchise of the Harry Potter story, like the saga. And so if you can't get your head around that, then in 
entire parts of this story are just going to leave you cold, so you kind of have to accept it. But at least the way that it's done here in Chamber of Secrets, I thought it was done in a little bit of a of a repeat-after-me kind of preachy sort of way, you know? Yeah, I, I can see that in terms of Hermione being called in Mudblood and how they had to have a scene where Harry, Ron, and Hermione talk about that with Hagrid and Hagrid kind of having to... It's a sweet scene because Hagrid sort of reassures her, like, don't worry about that. Don't let them, you know, rattle your cage. So I like that moment with Hagrid because it builds the relationship he has with those kids and how he mentors them. But I, I think you're right. I think the mudblood aspect of the story really comes into play with Voldemort. It comes into play with the Malfoys and all of the Death Eaters. And I, I was trying to think about what that would mean for wizards who take that so seriously. You know, is there, are there special abilities that are passed down genetically to wizard, you know, wizard to wizard? Or is it something like with Hermione, where if you just study really hard and you know your stuff, you can be just as good of a, a witch or a wizard as someone who was born into a magical family. So I think there, there's kind of that debate on, you know, what makes a good magical person. Yeah. Well, and, you know, everybody, everybody brings their own baggage to any, to any great work of fiction. You know, there's authorial intent, but then there's audience interpretation. And there, I mean, some of the great conflicts between artist and audience in history are really predicated upon the artist wanting to say something other than what the audience was interpreting from the work. But, like I say, we all bring our own our own sort of baggage to this. And, you know, my ability to relate to at least Harry and Hermione as sort of outsiders in this world, it kind of came from the fact that, you know, the town that I spent a, the majority of my of my childhood and formative years. I don't know so much about these days, but at least back then it was pretty much owned and operated by five families. And that's why I call them the five families, because they are families and there were five of them. Sure. So, and if pretty much if you were not in their good books, then you just were not going to have a good time in, you know, in the town. And this is, you know, true, you know, when you're going to school and whatnot, but it's also true just in terms of your adult life. I mean, if you ran a business, you know, I knew somebody who ran a coffee shop and somebody who was a member of one of the five families basically said that, you know, your coffee shop is not going to do well until you've been around for three years. And then after that, you'll be officially part of the, the town's business community. And sure enough, right at the three year mark, an, an accountant who was just looking at the books and didn't actually see anything, he would think that somebody must've been cooking the books because they went from being barely profitable to a roaring success Overnight, it looked it looked like, and that is the amount of control and influence that you know was exercised, you know, by these founding fathers. And so, this idea of always being on the outside—you're never really going to be part of the group, part of the community. That's something that I could kind of relate to just because, you know, I wasn't exactly in any of their good books. They had no reason to like me. 
and Harry is kind of going, Harry and Hermione both are kind of going through similar things and maybe for similar reasons. It's a, it was a conflict that I, that I was very, you know, very easily able to buy into. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think on some level, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are all kind of outsiders in the wizarding world. Harry has, you know, he has this fame, which would be nice for most people, but it's fame in some somewhat of a bad way because he lost his parents, but fame in a good way because he defeated, uh, a, you know, the worst of the worst in terms of wizards. Um, as, as a baby, so that makes him very famous, but it also sets him apart because nobody is really like him, and so he has a hard time kind of being able to express his opinions and, and have people identify with him. And Ron is sort of a pariah because he's a little bit of a, a poor kid who, whose family has, you know, the hand-me-downs and all of that kind of thing, and then Hermione, is is a complete, you know, muggle-born witch. She her her parents were not magical, so I think it's really interesting that for the trio, they all have their baggage. They all have their reason for not really being part of the community, like you say. But they all find community with each other. So I like that a lot. Well, and you know, actually, this honestly just occurred to me. Even Harry's sometimes even his attempts to do the right thing. When, when he did the right thing in The Sorcerer's Stone, he was generally rewarded for it. I mean, he stood up for, for Neville, behind Neville's back, but he still stood up for Neville. And he was rewarded with a spot on the Quidditch team. Here, even doing the right thing blows up in his face. You know, when he tries, whenever he and Ron and Hermione... When they when they drink the polyjuice uh, potion, it's nothing specifically negative necessarily comes out of that, but they come away empty-handed. They didn't succeed, and in the process, they had to stand idly by while Draco Malfoy talked shit to Percy Weasley. But then there was another moment though when it really did blow up in Harry's face. He saved I forget his name, but he saved that kid from the snake by talking the snake down. And yeah, he did a good thing. He probably saved that kid's life. But the school doesn't know that. All they know is Harry now can speak to snakes. And that's not good. Yeah, and it's because they all know why that's not good, because he shares that connection to Voldemort. But I, I think that's a, a thing that's, that Harry struggles with in, in the movie, is that he's... He's constantly trying to do the right thing, but sometimes he'll get put in situations where maybe he's, you know, checking on someone who's been petrified, but he um, is there when other people come and think that he's done it. So he's 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 a character who I think always wants to worry about other people and care about other people, but sometimes that will put him in situations where that might not be so great for him. Agreed. And I like, I, I kind of like that in fiction because it introduces a layer of not moral ambiguity, but like moral complication. You know, one of the things that I like about Smallville is that it, apart from telling bigger and bigger stories as it went along, Smallville 
basically put Clark in a position where he often had had very good reasons to doubt his own moral certitude. And, you know, he had reason to question, am I doing the right thing? And then ultimately it became, am I doing the right thing for the right reasons? Mm-hmm. And and I think that was a good and very powerful journey to, to take Clark on. And I don't think that Harry necessarily goes through that same journey, but he sometimes faces a lot of the same moral complications that sometimes doing the right thing doesn't have you know, uh, a pot of gold on the other side of it. Sometimes you suffer for doing the right things. And that's a major theme of the books that, you know, there is a difference between doing what's right and doing what's easy. And Harry, for better or for worse, is cast his lot as doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, even if it doesn't have a short-term or even maybe long-term benefit for him. Yeah, and I think also for Harry, he's not, especially in this movie, it's not so much like him trying to figure out what he needs to be doing, but he's also put in situations where he's questioning the integrity of other people. Like he has these doubts about Hagrid because of Tom Riddle's diary. They think that Hagrid was the one who opened the Chamber of Secrets, which caused the death of of someone 50 years ago. So I think it's an interesting look at how Harry has to learn how to trust his own instincts, but he also has to learn how to trust other people. And I think that's part of his instinct, too, is, you know, relying on his instinct to know who is good and who is bad. And, yeah, and you know what? That actually kind of ties back to what he said in the first movie, that he can tell the wrong sort for himself. And he said that in the first movie, but you know what? Now that you mention it, he actually demonstrates it in the second one. So that's that's interesting. I honestly, I never would have thought of that parallel if you hadn't said that. So well, and I and I like I like that it's through the character of Hagrid that he he has to learn how to apply that because Hagrid is he's such a good natured character, but to see him in this position where oh maybe he did do something bad we don't know we've got to investigate that. And I like that in the end, Hagrid is proven to still be that good guy that Harry knows that he is. Yeah, and that actually leads into another one of the movie's kind of drawbacks is, I again, I think this was an element of the book. I mean, it's hard to remember, but I think this was an element of the book that, you know, Hagrid has that moment of vindication. But in the movie, it's this kind of Care Bears type of ending where it's a little bit of a Hagrid sort of love fest, you know, and everyone has has that moment where they make their their special eye contact with with Hagrid. And you know what? I get it. There is a little bit of a bromance between Harry and Hagrid, and there is a sense in which they're kind of cut from the same cloth, you know, outsiders for their own reasons and in their own ways. But they are kind of kindred spirits. But I, I, I thought it was just a little bit overdone at the end of the movie, you know, and, and I don't know, as you say, I mean, Hagrid's a very good natured character and it's hard to root against him, but it was a little bit heavy handed at at the end of, at the end of this movie, I must say. No, I, I would agree. I mean, there, there is a little bit toward the end of Chamber of Secrets where, you know, they have that big ending with the, uh, the Great Hall and everybody has their hugs and everything is okay at the end. 
there there is a, a a bit of that where I think it's trying to play to the family friendliness of the story and trying to make everything seem okay and oh we we defeated the bad guy and everything is fine now we're gonna end on a good note and I, I think that's great because for these kids I mean the the act the characters are still just kids at, at this point so I I think it's good to leave on uh, a positive note, but I would agree that some of it's a little cheesy. And what, what is what is neat about the progression of the story and the progression of the movies is that, especially with the first two movies, they, are, they kind of have similar looks because they're the same director and they have a, a similar tone and a similar feel. But then as you kind of go through the story and Voldemort has a, a, an increasingly bigger part in coming back it gets darker and it gets scarier and you don't have as many of those moments anymore for the right reasons because you need to have that level of you know you have to know the stakes of the story and have to really feel that so i think this movie was the last of that mm-hmm. in a way where you, where you kind of left on a everything is going to be okay deal. right yeah this is yeah this this is really the uh the last happy ending they get for quite a while, isn't it? So, you know, one of the things that I kind of liked was that, you know, J.K. Rowling, she told this story and in such a way that we are given maybe not all of Voldemort's origin story, but we get a, a sample of it. But it's done in a way that until the very end, we don't actually know that this character that we're looking at is Voldemort. And when you think about it, I mean, that's a really clever way to to reveal at least elements of your your lead villain's backstory, because just to read it, you don't necessarily, you know, you don't know that this that this kid, this troublemaker is is going to grow up to be uh, Voldemort. And so it does give you something that on the reread, you when, when you know now more about. I guess the sleight of hand that's going on in the bookstore where the diary gets dropped into Jenny Weasley's um, possession. And then, you know, the unfolding story with with uh, Tom Riddle and goings on with the diary and everything. So that by the time you, you actually get to the showdown in the Chamber of Secrets and Tom, uh, the, or I guess the ghost of Tom Riddle, maybe that's the best way to put it for right now. Uh, he's He's like a memory in the diary. Oh, well, fair enough. But he he's basically a ghost. Yeah, and he writes in in midair, "I am Lord Voldemort," but it's spelled out Tom Marvolo Riddle, and then that's an anagram of "I am Lord Voldemort." And it's this weird, creepy, menacing, and kind of spooky moment in the movie that you realize this kid. He's not just a kid now. I mean, you've got some idea of what he's capable of and how dangerous he is. And Harry is in some seriously deep shit now. Yeah. And it it, it it's kind of it, it's weird that you can have a showdown with your villain and then throw a twist into it. And so my hat is off to J.K. Rowling for being able to do it. She I think she really did a, a, a good job with that as a reveal. It's It's very well done. I think the Tom Riddle aspect of this movie might be one of the stronger elements 
because what I think it does really well, like you were saying, like you're you're with this Tom Riddle character. You meet him through the diary and him kind of interacting with Harry through the, the writing in the book, which is really cool. It's a neat concept that, that he would be able to communicate through writing it down and then get sucked into the diary. That's always really cool. And it's a good it's a good effect in the movie. Um, and it's very understandable. You know what's happening and the the flashback you're seeing is through the diary. Like that it's it that's one of those things where it could be really hard to understand if done incorrectly, but the movie does a good job of visualizing that so you're you can you can follow along. And I think you made a great point about how Tom Riddle just seems to be like this other guy and you don't know the significance of who he is until that awesome reveal where you see him switch up the letters. And I think that's a really cool moment in the movie. Um, and I, I would argue it's one of the cooler moments in, in all of the series of movie, movies just because it's something, if you didn't know that reveal, it, it, when it comes, it's like, oh, crap. He's standing there with this memory of Voldemort who's trying to use Jenny Weasley to come back. So, I, yeah, I would agree. I think that stuff is, is really strong. Yeah. The, you know, one of the, one of the better, I think, better done story elements of, of Chamber of Secrets is basically Harry struggling with his, with his own identity. You know, it's the, I I guess the external example, we kind of touched on this a minute ago, is his, basically his status as an outsider, even among uh, you know, even at Hogwarts, he doesn't really fit in just because his legend looms pretty large. But <clears throat> on the personal level, what he sees is a a similarity between himself and and Tom Riddle, and he starts second guessing: Am I where I need to be? You know, in terms of Hogwarts houses. I mean, should I have been sent? to Slytherin. And the Sorting Hat's point is that, you know, you would have done great in Slytherin. I stand by that choice. You made a choice yourself, and that's why you ended up where you are. But just as easily you could have ended up in in Slytherin House and you would have been you would have been fine there. And Harry has kind of maybe a little bit simplistically, he's reduced it down to Gryffindor good, Slytherin bad. And to be fair to him, I mean, I think his lesson that simply being in Slytherin doesn't make you evil and simply being in Gryffindor or some other house doesn't necessarily make you virtuous. That lesson is still a little while off. But that, but the evidence that he has to work with in this story says that he could be on a very similar journey as Tom Riddle and no one can really say for sure what the end of it is except Harry himself. He doesn't seem to recognize his own, I guess, moral agency at times. Yeah, and I, I really like the parallels between Harry Potter and Tom Riddle, and I think it's a cool point that the movie and the book and the story make that um, the, the choices really prove who you really are, and it's a neat thing to think well, what would Harry have been like if he had been placed in Slytherin? Is it a nature versus nurture thing? 
if he had been part of the Slytherin group, if he had been Malfoy's friend, would he turn out any differently? And so I, I think that's a natural thing for Harry to question. And I like the moment in the movie where Harry's talking to the Sorting Hat because he he is now in this magical world where talking to the hat makes total sense. Like, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's become second nature. that, And I guess because he's also had this experience with the hat where, like, you know, down in the chamber when he... Uh, when Fox brings him the hat and it doesn't seem like it's going to do him any good and then he pulls the sword of Gryffindor out of it, that's because of who Harry is. And I think on some level the sorting hat knows that stuff. Like he, um, And I think Dumbledore probably knew that if he sent that sorting hat down there, Harry is a good character that he would be able to pull something like. Maybe if Dumbledore didn't know that he would pull, exactly pull the sort of Gryffindor out from there, but um, but he knew something would come of it that would be useful to Harry. And I think it's an awesome way to show uh, his character that the sort of Gryffindor would present itself, and he would be able to use that to defeat the Basilisk and and ultimately defeat the the memory or ghostly figure of Tom Riddle. Um, so I like that that little moment in the movie with the Sorting Hat and Harry because there is that connection where the Sorting Hat sort of held his fate to a point, mm-hmm. but it was but it was Harry, and Harry has that conversation with Dumbledore where, it, is it because I told the hat to put me in Gryffindor? Is that what it was? And Dumbledore says, exactly, that's exactly it. It was the choice that Harry said, I want to be in Dumbledore. Uh, he, he tells Dumbledore, he said, it was the choice that I wanted to be put in Gryffindor that changed things for the Sorting Hat. So I think that it's cool that Harry, at such a young age, learned those lessons that you can be put into a group because that's what people think you should be or uh, should be in or that they think you uh you know, that's the kind of person you are, but it's it's ultimately like your actions and your decisions and the way you treat people and what kind of heart you have that actually make you who you are. Very well said. I like that. That's the one of the things that and, and I and I realize I've kind of got ADD here, so forgive me, but to go back to acting for just a for just a moment. This is just completely preference. There's really no right or wrong answer here, but Moaning Myrtle plays a little bit of a role in this movie. I mean, this is really, I guess, her movie to shine, I suppose. Am I the only one who finds this actress just completely aggravating? <laughs> well, I think in some respects you're supposed to find her aggravating because she's not a really helpful character. She she is a she's a Moaning Myrtle, so she she complains a lot. She kind of stuck in the bathroom so she doesn't have a lot of options into you know who she interacts with and what she does so she is a character who I think we're supposed to find aggravating okay. because she is aggravating okay so I think you're you're okay with that I, I I feel the same way okay all right well it's just basically you know there's the the jar jar binks argument that you know Something can be intentionally aggravating, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that's okay. Guess what? It's still friggin' annoying. So, but uh, okay. Um, well, the the 
to kind of tie, and again, you know, ADD, I guess, coming into play here. You know, there's a moment at the end of the movie where we find out who Dobby belongs to, which is to say the Malfoy family. And the reasons for Dobby doing what he does, they're all, they're all made clear. Now, in this moment, you know, Harry really has no real reason to help Dobby. When you think about everything that's happened in the movie precisely because of Dobby's intervention, on the one hand. On the other hand, Harry knows that, he, 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 or at least he can think of a way to get Dobby out of what is, let's face it, a pretty bad situation, and chooses to go for it. And again, I think that just kind of says something, uh, it says a lot about Harry's character that he knew what to do and he was willing to do it, even though, let's face it, Dobby hadn't exactly helped him all that much, in spite of his best efforts, hadn't really helped all that much in the movie up to that point. So, Yeah, and, and, and I think it's great for Harry because he, he didn't hold that against Dobby. In the end, I think he saw Dobby, what Dobby does, even if it gets him in trouble with the Dursleys, like the, the funny moment in the, in the beginning where he, Dobby drops the cake. <laughs> who's come to the, to the Dursley household and, and Harry knows that that's going to mean bad things for him. And it does. He gets sort of locked up in his room. Um, so Dobby does a lot of things that prevent Harry from, going to Hogwarts or communicating with his friends, but in the end, he he's smart enough and mature enough, I think, even at that young of an age, that he recognizes that Dobby was trying to help him. And so in turn, he wants to help Dobby get out of his situation. And I think it's a great moment in the movie because the, the reveal is not so much that Dobby finds out that Harry did that for him. It's the, the moment between Harry and Lucius Malfoy that's so interesting because Malfoy doesn't seem to have a choice. Like, he has to let Dobby go no matter what. But to know that Harry almost tricked him into doing it, I think is a really fun moment in the movie. Right. And to find out, you know, like up to the, you know, up to this point, you know, Lucius had been definitely villainous, but I think it takes it to a, a, a whole new level whenever you have an adult. I mean, Lucius looks to be somewhere in his mid to upper forties and he's now threatening a little boy like bodily, you know, he's saying, you know, dude, your day's going to come. Somebody's going to kill you, and I hope I'm there to see it. And oh, and he, tr he tries to do it. He tries to use the Avada Kedavra curse on Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I I kind of have to assume that if, if, if Dumbledore really thought that loser was capable of hurting Harry, he would have, he would never have let Harry come face to face with him, never let him uh, get close, right? But I, then again, you know, you think about what, what Dumbledore has been willing to let Harry do up to this point. You know, the, the amount of risks he's, he's allowed Harry to take. Maybe he would let him have some kind of a showdown with, with Lucius Malfoy. Who's to say, you know? And so, 
and I, I do think it's it's kind of interesting that at the moment that Dobby can he actually can physically help Harry. He can actually now take sides against his former master. The minute he can, he does, and I think that says a lot. And I I assume this about Dobby's character that he starts warning Harry because he's heard things at the Malfoy house. So. Um, so I think it's cool that Dobby starts off as a character who's who's ultimately trying to help Harry because he he's heard some things. So I I think it's I think it's neat that it's a character who is good, good-hearted at his core, but who's been stuck with this family who is somewhat you know I, I would say evil at their core, but who also have tendencies to you know later we find out that. Maybe the you know maybe Draco's mother has maternal instincts just like any other mother, and maybe Draco has choices that he needs to make on his own. Hmm. So I think it's interesting that you have this really really good-hearted character like Dobby who's put in this you know quote evil household. Well, and one of the things that it does is there's something that happens later on down the line that. Uh, It basically makes it, it's a good reminder of how much damage a, uh, a, a disloyal house elf can really do. And that was foreshadowed here. A house elf's loyalty is not necessarily absolute. And if they want to, there's a, even working within their own rules, there's a lot of things they can do to harm the people that, at least on paper, they're loyal to. And it says something, I suppose, about you know the loyalty that you're that is forced upon you versus the loyalty that you have in your heart and if those two are at odds with each other bad shit can happen you know it just yeah. kind of makes you think yeah it goes back to that whole theme of choice there was a also a nice little moment at the end of the movie where hermione has no hesitation hugging harry after she gets out of the hospital wing but she shakes ron's hand Read into that whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have in the past. Um, but, yeah, it's... I, I think that's one of those things that I I sometimes question. I'm like, were they trying to go a certain way and then they backtracked? I don't know. But um, I guess in some ways, Harry was the one... Harry, Harry got to be the, the ultimate hero down in the chamber. Um, but that's... But Ron also played a big part in that as well. So it is one of those moments that sort of makes you feel bad for Ron. <laughs> well, one of the things that we haven't really talked... How are you doing on time, by the way? Um, I've got about 30, 45 more minutes. Okay. Uh, one of the things we haven't really talked too much about is Gilderoy Lockhart. I think everybody has known somebody like... And maybe not like this over the top, but I think everybody's known somebody like him, just this kind of showboat braggart, somebody who just is in desperate need of being taken down a peg, and maybe somebody who's not above taking credit for other people's achievements. I mean, this guy is, when you think about it, God help us all if he's ever somebody's boss, because he would be the worst boss I ever, you know? Yeah. And, but we've all known somebody like this, but there, he does take a kind of a dark turn near the end when he was willing to, he wasn't really 
gonna hurt Ron and Harry necessarily. But he didn't have their best interests in mind either, you know? He was perfectly willing to uh to modify their memories and again, I mean I'm not quite ready to call this you know, evil necessarily, but he is definitely I, in some in, in some ways, you know, what ends up happening to him at the end of the movie is, when you think about it, maybe that's the best justice he could have hoped for, you know? Yeah, well, I think it's it's funny that you, um, not funny, like, haha, but it just, I guess in an ironic way, that he um, wasn't so much about the best interest for Harry and Ron, he was more self-interest, because he was willing to protect himself, because I think once he gets busted by the other teachers of the school that he doesn't know what he's doing, then he has to figure out a way out of it, which I think is such an interesting part of his character. Like, he's willing to play up how great he is, and he has this sort of narcissistic quality to him that he wants everyone to care and love about, you know, love him and and care about what he's doing. But ultimately, he's a guy who has no clue as to what he's doing, and he has to um, find a way out of being in a dangerous position. And I think him trying to use the wand, you know, Ron's wand that earlier in the movie they set up was busted and and was not going to work properly. We see that when <laughs> Ron has to eat the slugs. <laughs> um, and he eats them for a while. But uh, I, I think it's, it's funny that he... And I, I think you're right. I think that is probably a fitting end for him, that he was a man who made his he made a fortune and acquired a lot of fame by taking the memories of other people and using it for what he wanted and for his self-interest. And his his end is that his memory is removed from him. And so that may be the, the best thing that, that you could do for him in terms of, you know, uh, making the bad guy, you know, get his just desserts. Hmm. Well, that's honestly, this is all so much more than I thought I was going to be able to say about this, uh, the uh, Chamber of Secrets. You got anything else you want to you want to throw in here? Um, let's see, uh, I you know, it's funny. I <laughs> I this uh, this is not one of my favorite movies in the series, so I would agree with you that I'm surprised by how much I, I do like about it, even though I think it has a lot of pacing problems and it has um, so much that it tries to throw into the, the movie, but I think it also does a lot of good world building like we talked about, like the Whomping Willow comes back into play in Prisoner of Azkaban, um, it introduces the concept of flying cars and traveling by flu powder, which... Um, we don't get to see a whole lot of in this movie, but it establishes it very well that it's something you can do. There's a lot of different kinds of transportation in the wizarding world. Um, I also really like the scene with Fox when Harry is introduced to Dumbledore's Phoenix. Yes. And um, I think it's really it's a really cool effect when you see Fox burn up and, and turn into ashes. And how Dumbledore, and I think Richard Harris's performance in that scene and how he tries to communicate to Harry that that this is just what a phoenix does, that this is part of life, that death is is part of what makes a phoenix a phoenix because the phoenix has to rise from the ashes. 
And um, I, I think that's a really, you know, looking, you know, knowing the end of the story of the Harry Potter story and kind of looking back at it, um, that I think that scene in that movie uh, it plays a really special part in, in my life that, you know, there's just an overall theme in the Harry Potter story of, of death and resurrection and, and um, saying goodbye to loved ones and things like that. And that was such a, a big part for me, especially when, uh, like I said, like I lost my grandfather and my father, you know, in two years of each other. Mm. And so that kind of thing emotionally for me um, still plays with me. And that, that scene in the movie is, is very good. And um, I, I just think, you know, there are some things that I don't like about this movie. I think there are some things that could have been improved. But I, I think overall it does a really good job of continuing the story. And I think all of the Harry Potter movies do that very well, where they kind of move the plot forward and move Harry's journey forward. And um, I, I think it's 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 worth a watch and it's worth a, a rewatch just to to see um, how Harry makes choices and how he learns how to make choices. So even if I don't like some of the the, film, the filmmaking aspects, I can appreciate the story of the characters. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, you know, this honestly just occurred to me, but this hate to end this on a kind of a negative note, but I just realized Colin Creevy is a, he's a, a, a major quote unquote supporting character in the book, less so in the movie, but he's still in the movie and he's almost as annoying in the movie as he is in the book. I've just never liked that character at all. And maybe he's just maybe it's uh, it's that he's not there to be liked. It's like the moaning Myrtle effect. But I don't know. That's um, ah aggravating. Well, and I, I sort of always saw Colin as that kid who wanted to be kind of in the, the big kids club. Mm-hmm. Like I think he always kind of wanted to be a part of Harry and Ron and Hermione's group mm-hmm. because he he thought so much of them. And so I think sometimes. Kids who do that can come across as annoying to the people that, that he's trying to get in with. So um, I, I guess I have a little soft spot, spot for, for Colin because I know that he, he just wants to be, be part of the game. Oh, yeah. Oh, see, now I feel bad. <laughs> so that wasn't nice. Don't hate him, Colin. <laughs> trying to fit in with the cool kids. Okay. You're breaking my heart, man. <laughs> All right. Well, we didn't really do this in uh, the last episode, so um, my apologies for that. But uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Well, sure. Um, I am one of the co-hosts of Supergirl Radio, which is a podcast dedicated to the now now the Supergirl TV series on the CW, not the CBS, uh, not CBS. So I'm having to have to get used to saying the CW and not CBS. But we're uh, a podcast dedicated dedicated to the Supergirl TV series starring Melissa Benoist. And um, all things Cars RL related, we talk about comics, animated movies, animated TV shows. We talk a little bit about the Smallville presentation of Supergirl. So if hmm. you are interested in Supergirl, you can um, find us at supergirlradio.com, and all of our links are on the right side of the page there. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. We have a Spotify playlist. So Wow. So we're actually a literal Supergirl radio, <laughs> which is really fun. Um, we have uh, songs in the playlist that are about Supergirl, that have Supergirl in the title, that are from Supergirl the movie, things like that, and, fr- and from the Supergirl TV series. So um, if you like the music on the show, we have that in there as well. So that's kind of a fun little thing that we've done. 
Um, but we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. So pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find us. That is awesome. Wow. You talk about going all the way with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we, we try to get out there. Any, any, anything that we can um, uh, and it, do to kind of help enhance the experience because actually the Spotify playlist was um, it kind of formed out of a listener email who um, the the listener wrote in kind of asking about songs about Supergirl. And we thought, well, let's do something. So sometimes those things kind of form out of a need in the fandom and a need in our listeners. And so we try to provide that. Awesome. Well, you see, like, I don't know how accurate this, well, obviously it wasn't accurate, but <clears throat> my original perception of, Re- of Rebecca Johnson was that she was this poor, poor girl who somehow got conscripted into podcasting, people kept saying, hey, I need to have her on my show. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, it, anyway, it's just, it, it's really neat. So, um, and your show, by the way, is extremely well done. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a big fan of your show as well. I love that you, co- you cover so many different topics, um, a lot of topics that I am interested in, but there are some topics that I just want to hear your thoughts on. Oh. So I, I love your podcast, and I, I think you do. A, a, my uh, my admiration of you is something that I try to employ into how I discuss things and how I think about things, because I think you do a really great job of, you know, even if there's something that you don't like, you um, analyze it and then you talk it out, and then you can find things that you like about things. And I think that makes your show kind of stand out from other podcasts that I listen to because I'm, I'm very turned off by podcasts and podcasters who just hate on things and hate on things and hate on things. But if you can find something good and productive to talk about, then I'm, I'm more willing to listen to what you have to say. And I'm, I'm speaking in a general view, not just, not just you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you do that really well. <laughs> so that's something that I try to implement when I talk about various um, topics. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And all I can say is, whatever you do, don't listen to episode 16 of my show then. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, then I will steer <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's pretty much it uh, for Chamber of Secrets, I suppose. But uh, as to next week, I'm going to be rejoined by Professor Allen so that we can talk about the Dark Knight. So that's generally considered to be really, the, I, I suppose, the creative high point of the Chris Nolan Batman trilogy so that sounds like fun to you come back next week because that's what we're going to be talking about but I think that's pretty much it for me this week so bye everybody I will see you next week glory glory hallelujah we are out dramatic reading what you're gonna do with all that junk all that junk inside your trunk i'm a get 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 you drunk get you love drunk off my hump 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 my lovely little lumps. Check it out. <laughs>
I drive these brothers crazy. I do it on the daily. They treat me really nicely. They buy me all these ice, Dolce and Gabbana, Fendi and Madonna, Karen, maybe Sharon, all their money got me wearing fly. Whether I ain't asking, they say they love my ass in seven jeans. True religion. I say no, but they keep giving, so I keep taking. And no, I ain't taking. We can keep on dating. Now keep on demonstrating. That's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com If you have a suggestion for a topic, feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. 
The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonsacore of Milan, Italy.